Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. All right. Thanks for joining us today. In case you haven't heard, the Alabama Supreme Court recently ruled that frozen embryos are considered children and that anyone who destroys one, therefore, could be held liable. Now, this case stems from a 2020 lawsuit that was brought forth by three couples whose embryos were accidentally dropped at a fertility clinic and thereby destroying them. So the couples sought to sue and they cited Alabama's wrongful death of a minor act. Now, while the lower court responded by saying that embryos do not qualify as people or children, the state Supreme Court disagreed, um, citing that all unborn children, regardless of their location, are covered under that wrongful death law. So as IVF, which is in vitro fertilization, has become more and more popular, giving couples who struggle with infertility the ability to have a family of their own, this ruling has gained a lot of attention and continues to do so. Um, And as always, a variety of responses. So Jim, can you first start off by unpacking IVF a little bit more? You know, if you've ever struggled with with, uh, fertility issues or know of a couple who has, you just know about the pain and the anguish of wanting so desperately to have a baby and not being able to, and just all of that can bring into a marriage and a home and family and life. Up to 15% of all couples struggle with infertility issues. So it's not a, a, you know, an insignificant number by any means. And even if it were 1%, it would still be not an insignificant number because of the, of the emotions and trauma. Uh, breakthroughs in fertility drugs and methods and procedures are nothing less than just a godsend to these folks. Um, one of those procedures is IVF, shorthand for in vitro fertilization. In vitro fertilization is the taking of a female uh, egg and outside of the womb, fertilizing it with a male sperm, which is what the word in vitro literally means. It's Latin for in glass, uh, in this case, meaning in a glass test tube. Uh, that's what gave the first children conceived by this method the name test tube babies. Uh, the embryo is then implanted into back into the woman with the goal that the egg and the sperm will attach themselves and continue to live and develop into a full-term baby. This procedure has helped countless numbers of couples who could not have had children in any other way. It's helped them experience the joy and the blessing of a family. It's costly. There's no doubt. It's not a cheap procedure, uh, but it has become relatively routine. Currently, um, the last figures that I saw, about 2% of all births in the U.S. are a result of IVF. So let's speak now to the implications of the ruling with regard to IVF. So I read an interview um, with BBC, Elizabeth Smith, she's the director of state policy at the Center for Reproductive Rights. She was quoted as saying, To enact legislation granting legal personhood to embryos could have disastrous consequences for the use of IVF, a science many people rely on to build their families. Why is that? Yeah, Um, there are several reasons. Uh, First, it's common to, in this procedure, to have multiple eggs fertilized, not just one, multiple eggs, and then to discard and destroy those that have imperfections. 
Uh, second, it's also common to freeze fertilized eggs that may or may not be used. They too might eventually be destroyed if not used. Um, if those fertilized eggs are ruled to have personhood, then you have to rethink the entire IVF process. Not reject it. We can get to maybe how it could be used, but you have to rethink how it's currently being done. Uh, but right now, that's that's the issue. Discarding uh, fertilized eggs and destroying them is common in the process, let's be clear, uh, which raises legal issues for hospitals. The Alabama case originated, as you mentioned, when three couples sued because their frozen embryos were accidentally destroyed and they sued for wrongful death. Uh, currently, an estimated 1.5 million embryos are currently on ice in the U.S. alone. That's a lot. Uh, so on multiple fronts, you can see why hospitals are wanting to shut IVF procedures down until this gets sorted out legally. Um, so, um, and when I say shut down, let, let me be more, more clear. Patients can, can continue the IVF process up through egg retrieval, but fertilization and implantation are currently being paused. Mm. Now, IVF is also a somewhat contested practice within Christianity, mostly because you just won't find it explicitly talked about in the Bible. You will find cases of infertility, but nothing about fertility treatments. Catholic teaching does forbid IVF, but Protestants tend to have a variety of viewpoints. So can you briefly outline the for and the against for IVF? Yeah, I think I can. Um, I, I can set the playing field. And I think hopefully in the process to bring about something of a, of a history of how we've, of where we have come from and where we're at. So hopefully this will serve. Let's begin by talking about the nature of life itself. At conception, when the sperm and the egg come together, all 46 chromosomes, which together form our entire genetic code, are present. Uh, from that point on, it's a question of milestones and developmental issues. And the stages early on are, obviously you have a sperm and an egg. You, then you have second conception. And then you have heartbeat, which is usually in around 14 days. Uh, then there is brain activity, which is in the seven to eight week mark. You have viability out of the womb as another milestone. That's constantly moving. Uh, with technology, I mean, USA could say 24 weeks, but you know, it, it's it's it just depends. Uh, brain waves themselves, brain activity starts about eighth week or so, but brain waves around the seven month mark, uh, and then ongoing maturity and milestones. Oh, I'm sorry, and then then after brain waves, usually the next one is is breath. I mean, the birth, and they take their first breath, and then there's ongoing. You know, people would say, well, then you still have ongoing maturity and milestones after birth, like puberty and such. The question is when in that developmental process does personhood begin? Um, you could argue that life began with just the egg and the sperm even before there was conception. I mean, you know, and, and, and so, so when does personhood begin? Some believe that since everything that makes up a human being in terms of chromosomes is present at conception, that it begins then. The pushback on that view is that it doesn't fit the definition of how we talk about the cessation of life. 
um, and when life ends, which according to medical science and most commonly is when we're brain dead. Uh, in other words, it's based on brain activity, uh, which is what our current legal definition is as well and tends to revolve around brain death, which would make the ending of a pregnancy after more, not so much conception, but maybe the seventh or eighth week, you know, first, you know, after the first trimester is over, which interestingly is the time when you can no longer perform a chemical abortion that doesn't work physically either. Uh, after about 10 weeks or so, you can't do that, only surgical. And so that's another kind of thing that kind of coincides for whatever reason with that same brain activity kind of milestone or mark. Um, and then some would also point to saying, well, to really be um, clear, if you're going to go brain waves, which is seventh month, then it's really the third trimester that you need to protect in terms of personhood. But theologically, the key issue for life is actually ensoulment, uh, meaning when that life represents or holds or reflects a soul, which is why the whole issue of even something like twins is relevant here, um, because twinning does not occur until after conception. So technically, one could argue that ensoulment couldn't happen until at least after that time. The, the Bible is rather silent here. It's not silent about murder, uh, but it's a bit murky about when life is to be valued in the way that we're talking about it. People often look at the 139th Psalm where David talks about God knowing him in his mother's womb, but that's a poetic prayer. That's not a scientific statement. And even if you take it as a scientific declaration, then it begs the question, well, at what stage in the mother's womb? Uh, there's another passage that actually is more direct, which is in Exodus 21, where there is a case of when two men get in a fight, what do you do if a pregnant woman is accidentally hurt by that fight? Uh, if that woman, and this is again, Exodus 21, if she loses her baby through miscarriage because of that action, they, the, the men involved are to be fined. But if she dies, they're charged with murder. So there was a clear delineation between the death in the womb and the death of the mother. Um, and some people might want to say, well, what do you want to make of that? I don't know. It's the Holy Spirit who inspired it and put it in there. I mean, but it's, it's there for us to wrestle with. But there was a distinction drawn between those two losses. Where most Christians land is as follows. At least this is the least you can say. We all embrace that human beings are made in the image of God and are to be valued and protected. We all believe in the sanctity of human life and are, of course, pro-life in that sense, from cradle to grave. No one wants to see abortion in any form used in a haphazard way to simply serve a promiscuous lifestyle or in a way that shows a complete disdain for sexuality and, and marriage. No Christian that I know of is in favor of late-term, third-trimester abortions because there's very little debate uh, that once you get to the third trimester, you've got a life. You've got brainwaves and you've got ensoulment. And, and no one has much of a problem, uh, although even that is relatively new. It would, would have been once they just gave birth, but we'll get to that. And no one really has much of a problem at any stage if the woman's life is in danger, uh, because then you're simply seeking to protect another human life, though the goal is to seek to save both. The question is whether it happens at the sperm egg level 
which is the Roman Catholic view, which is why they don't support the use of condoms. They don't support the use of the pill because they believe it starts at the sperm before conception, at the sperm life, the sperm egg level, or whether you think it occurs at conception or whether it occurs at like, you know, after the first trimester or, you know, um, with a brain activity. And if you believe that, then you have no problem with the use of the con condoms and the pill and allow for those who are raped or victims of incest or just seek a first trimester abortion for various reasons. And that's what most miscarriages are as well. And um, but, but choosing among those three, uh, I think, are, are fair conversations for the Christian, the sperm egg level, the conception level or the end of the first trimester. Now, now on to IVF. Among those Christians who believe that life begins at conception or who believe it begins at the sperm egg level, even before conception, there can be an uncompromising opposition to in vitro if done in any way that discards or destroys a fertilized egg, but not to IVF itself. So speaking in broad terms, this is more of a divide between Catholics and Protestants. Catholic teaching doesn't even allow any use of IVF whatsoever. doesn't matter how much you protect the eggs, whether you use them all, don't use them all. It's expressly forbidden. Protestants tend to be more open. Um, the evangelical tradition within Protestantism, though often anti-abortion, uh, is often pro-IVF uh, because they are pro-family, they are pro-children. IVF creates more children, which might make you think, but I don't get it. How can you be you know, anti this, pro this, because, you know, if you believe life begins at conception. And and my my response is exactly. I think that's why this has caused so much conversation of late and, and confusion. Um, and here's why. Pastors have tended to talk about the sanctity of human life in a very, many of them in a very absolutist way at conception, uh, but don't ever speak to fertility issues and, and even embrace and encourage IVF within their people. And then a story like this breaks and people are going, I'm really, really confused. The, uh, this ruling that we're talking about is showing how being consistent with the idea that personhood begins at conception is problematic for a lot of issues related to both birth control, not just fertility issues, but birth control. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason there hasn't been a lot of thought about this among Protestants. And, you know, I mean, let's just be candid about this and even evangelicals. This is a new issue and life beginning at conception, and this is going to surprise people, is a new position. This is very new. In the decade leading up to the decision legalizing abortion in the United States, Roe v. Wade, abortion really was considered by Protestants to be, oh, that's just a Catholic issue. I mean, that's not our issue. That's, that's your issue. That's not us. We're, we have no hangups about it. Back to 1968, Christianity Today magazine, the flagship evangelical publication founded by Billy Graham, uh, convened a symposium. Again, something very few people know or are old enough to remember <laughs> or have done the history work. But they convened a symposium of some two dozen theologians who, in the end, could not agree on whether abortion was sinful or not. Hmm. Uh, equally telling is that in 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution affirming abortion, affirming the procedure under a wide range of circumstances. In fact, 
one of the leaders of the SPC at the time, some would say it's it's grand old man, was a guy named W.A. Criswell, pastor of First Baptist Dallas, who said he had always felt that it was only after a child was born and then had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. Now, to be fair, um, some things have changed since Roe v. Wade was passed. Uh, first, there's been an increase or there was an increase in the number of abortions nationwide which some found alarming, you know, after the fact. Second, an increase in technology allowed us to peer into the womb and the developmental stages of the child. And then third, um, and, and I think this may have been the most telling for evangelicals, there was, yeah, the very influential writings of Francis Schaeffer and uh, the former Surgeon General of the United States, a man named C. Everett Koop, who made it clear uh, it, that to them, and then they made the case specifically to evangelicals that life began at conception and that abortion should be a moral issue. Hmm. Uh, and they were successful at that. It really hadn't been prior to that. Um, so what you had until very late was this newer idea among some that abortion was wrong, but it wasn't really applied or thought through in terms of what that meant for birth control or fertilization issues. So you had this kind of growing anti-abortion viewpoint among some evangelicals, but uh, no problem with birth control and and uh, pretty much no no breaks on anything with fertility issues and the use of IVF. Yet, if life begins at conception and you have fertilized eggs and a process that wantonly destroys some of those eggs, you can't have it both ways. Uh, so either you fall back on a Roman Catholic view that opposes IVF and nearly all modern fertility interventions, including birth control, uh, because many forms of birth control destroy a fertilized egg or keep it from implanting. And this is something that many people don't know. A lot of people are just haven't don't realize that if you're on the pill, you very well be committing what in your mind is abortion or you are committing abortion. But whether it's a taking of a life or not, but you 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 run a risk every single um, ovulation period with the possibility of of ending a fertilized egg, because what birth control does it's it's threefold. First, it tries to prevent ovulation, but if that's not successful, it tries to make it harder for the sperm and the egg to connect and for the sperm to uh, fertilize the egg. But if the sperm does fertilize the egg, the last thing that the pill does is prevent implantation of a fertilized egg and to have that fertilized egg die, to be lost. So let's be clear. That's exactly how birth control. That's what the pill does. Um, so you either um, or finally, you just rethink when personhood begins. You know, the Roman Catholic view, I think, is really interesting here. It's it's. Um, it's, it's really multifaceted when people say, well, I don't understand. What do you mean by sperm and egg? And why are they so anti-everything? Um, they really are multifaceted in their opposition to IVF. First, they're, and again, I'm getting into stuff that a lot of people may not know, but and I'm giving you a longer answer, but I think it's important that we get all this out there. Yeah. First thing is that is that it involves masturbation. <laughs> you know, there is the masturbation, which is required to collect sperm, and that is opposed by the Catholic Church. The, there's the fertilization of the egg and the sperm outside of a woman's body, which to Catholic thinking is outside of the sacramental conjugal act of sex between a husband and a wife. 
And then as mentioned, there is the creation of multiple embryos that are often destroyed or not implanted, which is considered um, abortion. The Catholic Church is also against any other kind of artificial insemination. They're also very recently reminded everybody they're against surrogacy. Mm -hmm. So it's really part of what has been called an ecosystem of beliefs that forbid this. Um, they might allow what are called um, assistive uh, technologies like hormone therapies, uh, surgeries to address scar tissue uh, issues, uh, deep tissue massages, all of that's fine, but not replacement ones like IVF. The Catholic idea is that it really must involve sex as a holy act exclusively between a husband and a wife. But most Protestants and certainly evangelicals are people of the book. You know, they don't they don't read. They don't want to bring they want to kind of go with the go to the Bible and go with the Bible. And the Bible doesn't mention IVF. And uh, but this ruling has forced the issue and forced a more thoughtful theology or at least a more applied theology um, in terms of, OK, my goodness, now that we're thinking about this, if we say it begins at conception, it means this, 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 this and this. So are we going to say that it Roman Catholic is sperm and an egg? Are we going to say it's conception? Or are we going to say more like, you know, by the end of the first trimester and start looking at things like brain development and, and, and such? But this, this, is, this is why this has become such a big issue. It has not been thought through. And, uh, and many kind of wooden declarations are just that. They're very wooden. Hmm. Um, and, and it is a pressing issue, particularly when, according to the Pew Research Center in 2023, um, 42 percent of Americans um, uh, said they or someone they knew had sought fertility assistance. And that was up from 33 percent just in 2018. So we're talking about almost half of all Americans mm -hmm. have experienced this, pursued this, know someone who has. And um, so it's a it's a significant issue. Yeah. Well, I want to take a look at what the Alabama Chief Justice Tom Parker, what he said as to like as to what basically brought about their decision calling an embryo a human life. I'm going to quote him here. He says, even before birth, all human beings have the image of God and their lives cannot be destroyed without effacing his glory. He also continues to write um, that human life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God who views the destruction of his image as an as an affront to himself. Okay, in response to his comment, I want to first hear your thought on his reasoning, and then I want to address all the ensuing banners of critique raised in the name of church-state um, separation. But first, what do you think about his... Oh, that's, that's all this question is? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I think you like you, 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 these questions to you are like revenge somehow, or like pulling out knives or ready to. OK, let's jump in. Let's see if I can get this shot. Uh, Justice Jay Mitchell, uh, who was also an avowed Christian, uh, actually wrote the majority opinion. Um, and um, uh, Parker did not. Uh, but Mitchell Mitchell wrote the, the majority opinion um, in the embryo ruling. And he focused on the understanding of the word child and didn't mention God at all. Um, let me read that part from him. And I quote, he said, here, the text of the wrongful death of a minor act is sweeping and unqualified. It applies to all children born and unborn without limitation. It is not the role of this court to craft a new limitation based on our own view of what is or is not wise public policy. That is especially true where, as here, 
the people of this state have adopted a constitutional amendment directly aimed at stopping courts from excluding unborn life from legal protection. So for him, it was more like, this is how I have to apply the law if we're going to say this as a state. And of course, what the, the rejection of Roe v. Wade did was not make abortion illegal in the United States. Let's be clear. It turned it over to the states to make that decision. It just said, we're not going to make it a federal thing. It's a state issue. You mentioned Chief Justice Tom Parker, who offered a concurring opinion, though his relied, as you pointed out, on his understanding of biblical personhood. And when you read it, I mean, he referenced Genesis, he referenced the Apostle Paul, he referenced Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, John Calvin. I mean, a lot. Let me read him a little more fully on that. He said, the theologically based view of the sanctity of life adopted by the people of Alabama encompasses the following. One, God made every person in his image. Two, each person therefore has a value that far exceeds the ability of human beings to calculate. Three, human life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God who views the destruction of his image as an affront to himself. As for my views on that, I think that if you hold I'll give you a very short answer here and I'll let you go on to the next question because I think we'll just keep unpacking this. But I think that if you hold to personhood beginning at conception, then yes, this reasoning follows. But as I mentioned, that's not the only view. And it's a relatively new one in evangelical thinking. Well, okay, so let's go to the second half of the question then. Because even if you do agree with Parker or the this, this Supreme Court's ruling from a theological standpoint, you might be still uncomfortable with the official state ruling. In fact, right. many are citing this as a violation of church-state separation. Others are raising the flag of saying this is Christian nationalism. So what are your thoughts on that? Here I might give you a bit of a longer answer. Okay. There's no doubt that by citing verses from the Bible and Christian theologians uh, in his concurring opinion, he greatly alarmed advocates for church-state separation and greatly delighted those who oppose abortion, at least, I mean, at any place, you know, even first trimester abortion. While Parker's concurring opinion doesn't carry the force of a precedent, the fear of those who want to protect the separation of church and state is that it's going to influence judges in other states and their opinions. The heart of the argument against the ruling is that it violates religious freedom. Uh, meaning the freedom to have a different view of when personhood begins based on your religion, based on your understanding of, of, of life. This attempts to enshrine one particular version of a Christian view. I think it would be um, very disingenuous to say that this is the Christian view. It's one Christian view. But having said that, while some critics of his verbiage point to the ever-growing reach of Christian nationalism, no, <laughs> I, I, I am not one of them. As a recent opinion piece in the New York Times noted, written by an evangelical Christian, uh, and we'll put this in the show notes, to understand what Christian nationalism is, it's important to understand what it isn't, that, that it's just being bandied around so much. And we did a podcast on this. We can reference people to it. But let me be even more clear right now. It is not Christian nationalism if a person's political values are shaped by the individual's Christian faith. In fact, many of America's most important social movements have been infused with Christian theology and Christian activism. 
Uh, many of our nation's abolitionists thundered their condemnations of slavery from northern pulpits. The civil rights movement wasn't exclusively Christian by any means, but it was pervasively Christian. Martin Luther King Jr. was, of course, a Baptist minister. Anyone may disagree with Christian arguments around civil rights or immigration or abortion or religious liberty or any other point of political conflict. But, and, and Christians may disagree with one another on these topics um, all the time, but it is no more illegitimate or dangerous for a believer to bring her worldview into a public debate than it is for a secular person to bring his own secular moral reasoning into politics. In fact, the author of that particular editorial went on to say that he had learned from other faiths uh, other than his own and, and that our public square would simply be impoverished without access to the thoughts and ideas of Americans of faith. Um, the problem with Christian nationalism isn't with Christian participation in politics, but rather the belief that there should be Christian primacy in politics and law. And I think that's a very important understanding. It can manifest itself through ideology, identity, and emotion. And if that were to take hold, it would both upend our constitution and it would fracture our society. And so that I would condemn and I would say is not biblical at all. Hmm. This has been really helpful, I, but I feel like I've got one more question because before we wrap up, I have no idea. I have, I have no doubt that some of our listeners have, as you pointed out because of the statistics, have either used IVF or know someone very dear to them who has. And as you mentioned, it is not a decision that you come to lightly. Uh, it might be routine, but it is a very challenging process, not, not only financially, but just emotionally, the toll it takes on a woman's body. I mean, there's just so much. So in light of all of that, do you have a pastoral word that you might want to share with them in light of what we've talked about today? Well, as you would imagine, being in pastoral ministry for almost 40 years, I've certainly had to deal with this time and time again, as have all the pastors on our staff. Um, I think it's important to say that no matter, and there are a couple things, let me just, very important to say in this context, it's very important to say that no matter where you land on IVF, no matter where you land, let's be clear, the children who are conceived through it are to be valued like any other child. Uh, they are made in the image of God. They are gifts from God. How a child is conceived does not change that. A second thing I would say is that couples need to decide where they stand on when personhood begins. And you, you have to settle that before you enter into this. Or as certainly, you know, because you're going to be, you know, these are, you got to settle this. When do you believe ensoulment takes place? Uh, the question is whether it happens, again, at the sperm egg level, which is the Roman Catholic view, whether it occurs at conception or whether it occurs at, you know, sometime toward the end or at the end of the first trimester with brain activity. And if you hold that third view, it certainly allows for the use of condoms. It allows for the use of the pill. It allows for any number of reasons for ending a pregnancy during the first trimester, including rape and incest. But choosing among those three, I think, as I've said, I think those are fair conversations uh, for any Christian to have. And, and landing on any one of those three, particularly, I would say, the latter two, um, is fair for a Christian to land on. Uh, now let's imagine a couple with fertility issues. Let's say they have decided 
to land on personhood, just let me go ahead and just make this as, as, as difficult as possible so that we can kind of sort it out pastorally. Let's just say they say, okay, we want to pursue IVF. We have these fertility issues, but we do believe life begins at conception. That's where we've landed. Okay. Um, as, as we've talked about, whether in vitro fertilization takes place or when it, whenever it takes place, it's not just a single egg and sperm brought together, but many eggs and sperm. In fact, it's very common for doctors to fertilize as many as 30 eggs during uh, in vitro procedures. And in many cases, not all of those fertilized eggs are implanted or even planned to be implanted in the future. This can be disturbing even if you don't believe insolment happens until after the end of the first trimester. It's just still kind of concerning. Like you find out, wait, you did how many eggs? You know, I didn't, I didn't know that. And now you're asking me what I want to do with them when I didn't know you were even going to do that many. Um, and so, um, and in many cases, not all of those fertilized eggs are implanted or even planned to be implanted in the future. The unused embryos are either destroyed or frequently, more frequently actually frozen. Um, and many couples, as I said, are not aware of this or they don't fully understand what's involved with the procedure on the front end. In fact, most fertility programs won't even, don't even discuss this with their patients, which I find egregious. Mm. The couple is just set up for this emotional blindside when they're told that they have frozen embryos remaining and what would they like to do with them? Most couples thought all of them were used or that the eggs weren't fertilized until the time of implantation, but that's not how it works. So for many couples, and, and pastors need to help people understand this whenever they come to them and say, hey, pastor, you know, or I'm thinking about doing this. Is, is God okay with this? You know, I'm, you know and, and you have to talk with them about this. So for many couples, the in vitro process involves the destruction of many fertilized eggs. If you hold to insolment occurring at conception, again, that's not the only view. But if you do, then that would be of grave concern. Uh, pastors, when talking with people, need to make sure they know this. They should first walk through, I would say, the choices about personhood that they need to make as a biblical Christian, what their options are and what the choices are. Then second, if they pursue something like IVF, they need to go into it with full knowledge, their eyes wide open, particularly if they land on personhood beginning at conception. And if they do believe that, the advice of most Christian ethicists has been simple. Take advantage of the technology, but be very careful with how many eggs you allow to be fertilized. There's not a need for 30 or more to be fertilized. Uh, and tell your doctor that you don't want any of them destroyed unless they are medically incompatible with life. Don't have more than three inserted at a time to reduce the risk to yourself and to the embryos. And finally, whatever number you agree to, commit yourself on the front end to use them all, either in the present cycle or in future cycles, or arrange for them to be adopted, which is another hot thing right now, which is embryo adoption, fertilized egg adoption. Uh, when you go at it this way, will all live? No, but as a woman's body accepts or rejects the eggs, the process is left in a more natural way and not in a technologically driven way. But again, settle, settle where you stand on this, because I, I think this is where Christians haven't done as much thinking. They have, maybe they haven't had time to do as much thinking. And there have been very wooden things said about when life begins. And now we're starting to see that, uh, while that may have been an easy rhetoric to embrace the application of it to a lot of things that they were also embracing has become more complicated, which has, I think, and not inappropriately led some people to not so much 
use that to water down conviction, but to go back and say, did I really hold to that conviction with information and really looking at everything scriptures has to say and, and looking at it through the light of historical orthodoxy? And do I have options there? And if so, what are the implications of that uh, for my life and my faithfulness to God? Yeah. Mm. As always, Jim, thank you so much for your research on this. Thank you for pushing us to have a more coherent um, and thoughtful Christian worldview, as opposed to just kind of isolated opinions that um, don't, yeah, aren't necessarily connected with one another. So I think this is a good, going to be a good challenge for a lot of us, not only on the Alabama ruling, but yeah, and just our, our whole thought process behind this. So I really appreciate that. And again, as always, for our listeners, thank you for giving us your ear for this time. We'll catch you next week.